Hello, and welcome back to Eldritch Girl. And for this author interview bonus, I've got Arden Powell with me. It's lovely to have you. Um, Arden, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a Canadian speculative fiction writer and hybrid author with a focus on fantasy, romance, and horror. Uh, my first novel came out from a small press in 2018. And then in 2020, I started self-publishing with Fairy Hounds and The Bayou being my first two releases. And The Bayou just got um, done by the Midnight Society. Yes, I saw, <laughs> I saw that. that. I was thrilled just getting dragged through the mud. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Did you see a spike in sales or interest? Um, yeah, it was, it was my best-selling book this month. Um, so I assume that's connected. Wow. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm so pleased. So we're going to hear about the Bayou in a minute. Um, So the first, uh, the first extract you've got for us is from Fairy Hands of York, which you've uh, just mentioned in your intro. Um, And we thought we would do two together today for you guys, because they work really well as like a summer winter pairing, which you might see in a minute when Arden does the, <laughs> does the extracts for us. And we're going to discuss both. So it's like a two for one this time. Um, so I'm going to hand over to you and you, uh, Arden and you can kind of contextualize the extract that you've got for the Hounds of York um, novel and then read the extract and we'll have a little chat if you like. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Um, Yes, so The Fairy Hounds of York is a dark fantasy set in Northern England, 1810. Um, I was just going to read the, like, back cover blurb, if that's... Yeah, that's fine. That's good. Okay. (laughs) Um, William Loxley is cursed. A pale and monstrous creature haunts his dreams, luring him from London to the desolate grey landscape of his forgotten childhood. There, it will use him to open a door to fairy, a fate that will leave Loxley trapped in that glittering heathen otherworld forever. His only hope of escaping the creature's grasp lies with John Thorncrest, a dark and windswept stranger met on the moors. The longer Loxley stays in Thorncrest's company, the harder it becomes to fight his attraction to the man. Such attraction can only end in heartbreak or the noose. But Thorncrest has his own bleak ties to fairy. They come creeping in with the frost, their howls carrying on the winter wind. If Thorncrest's past catches up with him before they can break the curse, then Loxley will not only lose his soul, he'll lose Thorncrest too. The context for the excerpt um, that I'm going to read specifically is uh, Thorncrest, having just seen the fairy hounds through the window, um, is therefore doomed to die in three days. And he finally opens up to Loxley and tells his sister's story. Um, And his sister, who had seen the fairy hounds years and years before, and uh, sent him on this kind of mission to not avenge her death, but find her again. I'm going straight into reading it. Loxley listened to the steady beating of Thorncress's heart. Who did fairy take from you? Thorncress's heart skipped a beat and Loxley bit his lip, waiting. When Thorncrest finally spoke, his voice was rough and ruined. My sister. He stood, disengaging from Loxley entirely, and paced to the window. You should rest, Mr. Loxley, 
the charms will safeguard you from the worst of the creature's efforts, even here. You're not joining me? Later. Thorncrest glanced back at him. His features were drawn, and exhaustion and old grief weighed heavily on his brow, but he didn't look angry anymore. Go to sleep. I'll be here. Hesitantly, Loxley nodded and shed his outer layers, crawling under the blankets to curl up on the cold mattress alone. When he looked over, Thorncrest had turned back to the window, resting his forehead against the glass. He held a piece of paper between his fingers, its edges worn to softness, and though he turned it over between his hands, he didn't read it. Loxley dreamt he was standing in his childhood bedroom. The room had no roof. Above him, the sky was vast and full of tiny glittering stars, like pinpricks torn through black velvet. Tipping his head back, he watched his breath curl out in a plume of frost, shimmering up to the stars as if it meant to join them and build its own galaxy. He woke to the sound of howling. He couldn't place the sound at first. It echoed through the house like there were no walls separating them from the wild. The cry started low, almost a moan, before soaring up in pitch, drifting on the wind. Thorncrest was still at the window, rooted to the spot, staring out into the darkness. Rousing himself and pushing up to his elbows, Loxley called his name, but he didn't move. Unnerved, Loxley wondered for an instant if he was still trapped in that dream. But Thorncrest finally stirred, as if breaking from a trance. Her name was Rosa. He turned, offering Loxley a glimpse of his profile. His hair hung in his face, and dark circles ringed his eyes, which had a faraway stare to them. She was 16, I was barely 20. We were raised on all the old stories, but it didn't help. He drew a deep breath. He hadn't looked at Loxley once since he had started talking, and Loxley didn't dare interrupt. She saw the hounds one morning. I wasn't there. She sent me a letter, though she knew I would never make it home in time. It reached me two days after her death. I'm sorry, Loxley said, knowing it was insufficient. She didn't tell anyone else. She didn't want to worry them, not when there was nothing to be done. I still carry her letter. Trailing off, he stared into the shadows for a moment before continuing. She described the hounds as great white beasts with eyes like foxfire, terrifying and beautiful, like witnessing a natural disaster, something beyond comprehension. She said that even if she hadn't known the stories, she still would have understood that she was going to die. Loxley swallowed. His knuckles were white in the sheets. Are you still trying to find her, your Rosa, after all this time? Yes, Thorncrest said simply. If she died, 22 years ago, but her soul passed into fairy, not heaven, and time passes differently there, I could still find her. Following her into fairy is a death sentence. Thorncrest said nothing. Do you want to die? Loxley finally asked in a broken voice. I made a promise. Thorncrest's pitch was so low that Loxley strained to hear him. I'm not one to break an oath. A promise to do what exactly? Exact revenge? Loxley's voice cracked in frightened desperation. You cannot best a fairy hound. You'll only get yourself killed. I've hunted the hounds all my life in the hopes that if I followed in her footsteps, I could find her again, wherever she is, and bring her back. And if not that, then at least I could join her so she wouldn't be alone anymore. 
Surely she's released you from your promise by now. I've not released myself, said Thorncrest. She was my little sister. I should have been there. If nothing else, we could have gone together. She shouldn't have had to die alone. Loxley could make no response to that. If he were to die at Fairy's hands, he would appreciate whatever companionship Thorncrest could offer right up until the end. A hand to hold, a friend to sit by his side, someone to keep him from being quite so afraid as the dark and the cold crept in. Shivering, he cast aside such morbid thoughts. What worked for men like Thorncrest did no favors for those of Loxley's disposition. He could not imagine harboring a death wish for so long. But then, perhaps he only lacked the proper motivation. He had no family to protect, no love for whom to die. Then again, there were times when, under the enchantment, the danger felt more like a comfort, and being so near the thinning of the worlds felt almost like coming home. In those times, he found himself in deep rumination in the darkest hours of the night. Perhaps if he studied that strange comfort a little harder, he might come to understand Thorncress's resolution. Oh, I love it. I, <laughs> I love that part. Um, and I love the relationship between the two men as well, because it's very much like a gothic um, romance in that kind of way. And I love the um, just the way that they grow in each other and the way that it becomes this really um, very sweet kind of it, it's yeah this really sweet romance and so how do you think romance and grief work together in the book as, as themes bouncing off each other and intertwining like what was your authorial vision for that <laughs> um yeah um from the earliest stage that I was drafting fairy hounds I knew it was going to be both a romance and a tragedy um, although I wasn't sure what form exactly it was going to take until I got deeper into the writing. Um, because I do let most of my themes in my books develop organically. Um, so it's very rare that I go into a draft knowing exactly what themes I want to explore. They usually take shape as it goes along. And then usually I get readers after the fact who are like, so you did this and this and this. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> That's so good to know. Um, yeah, because I, I don't always have a clear cut vision until after it's done. Yeah, I think I do something very similar. <laughs> so, and it's, it's often like I ask beta readers and stuff what themes they pick out because sometimes that's very different to what I thought mm -hmm. was in there. But yeah, and I, I quite like the the contrast between the hope of the new relationship with the power of loss in the novel and it's kind of like you've got this inevitability about it this inevitability of tragedy looming on the horizon and that kind of permeates the whole thing and it's about it's about a guy trying to because he doesn't know Thorncrest very well at all he's he's just kind of met him right so it's about this guy who just kind of falls in love with a random stranger he meets on the moors <laughs> and then finds himself trying to persuade him to stay alive like you know like it's that sort mm -hmm. of yeah but there's so much about his past that he doesn't have access to that he can't touch 
and then it's sort of what do you do with that where do you go from there um and I wondered if um those sorts of things uh with work uh, how you worked in the folklore and the Yorkshire Gothic tradition and the Northern English Gothic tradition um did you read a lot of books that were sort of Gothic romance Gothic tragedy or did you feel like there were particular themes from the folklore that you borrowed that really played into that um and was that like a conscious choice um in regards to the Gothic it was not conscious <laughs> Um, I had some background in, in the Gothic genre uh, through university and some of the classics there. When I was writing Fairy Hounds, I wasn't actively thinking about a genre. Um, it was my first self-published book, so I really wasn't thinking about how to categorize anything at all at that point. But it was definitely influenced specifically by the melodrama of Wuthering Heights, and a lot of the folklore and magic of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And those were the two touch points that I came back to. For Wuthering Heights specifically, it was a lot of the imagery and uh, wandering the moors and the lost love and the doomed romance. For drawing from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, because I first read that a couple of years prior to drafting the book. And it's such a huge historical, like almost academic piece of work um, that I wasn't trying to emulate at all. That's such a different um, type of writing. But I really liked um, the focus that that book had on Northern England as being this wilder kind of unintegrated chunk of Britain, really and the way it's closer to fairy and the worlds are thinner up there. And I, I definitely pulled on a lot of that for, uh, for fairy hounds. I really liked that. Have you ever um, been uh, to Britain or have you been to- I have island? not, I have not done any <laughs> traveling. Um, I, uh, I was going to talk about this more later, but yeah, for, for fairy hounds, for the, um, I was, I was pulling a lot of the visual descriptions of Northern England, um, cause I grew up in Nova Scotia and I was like, there's gotta be enough similarities for me to kind of pull on my own experiences of those winters, which were probably a lot stormier than I imagine England gets, <laughs> but still for the mood I was, I was pulling on Nova Scotia rather than actual England but I think it worked okay yeah I think that works though because then you've got that sense of unreality almost mm -hmm. that for people who um who do know <laughs> who do know what <laughs> what Yorkshire's like <laughs> and mm -hmm. it does get quite it gets quite bleak up there it gets quite story but like yeah you then have you also have I guess the sense of oh it is in a different and also it's historical fantasy as well so you have that um separate layer of distance of time for a modern readership as well so you can kind of suspend uh, a lot of your conceptions about what it's like now you know it's it doesn't really matter in that sense it's like you know it's accurate enough but also it's different enough that you've got this idea of yes I could believe that there are fairies and it's it's a different kind of AU if you like and it works really well it's like a it was it, yeah it's like a really nice um 
alternate uh, fairy tale setting that's also quite bleak and dark and very rugged and yeah it works quite well for that um, so what about your um, where did you come up with the the fairy world building uh, sort of what sort of research did you do um, I love the fairy hounds themselves because that's very they're very much described like the Klingonuns so they're kind of um, the white with red ears right is that <laughs> that quite yeah basically like yeah. <laughs> yeah so like the um which I think pop up in kind of Irish mythology as well the fairy hounds but um I've done I've done blog posts on the Welsh gothic with the Cunanona specifically so the Welsh hounds of the hunt that come out of um Anovan and uh you know they're led by Aron and that kind of you know that's a Mabinogion kind of um context for them and that's the the hunt that sucks the blood of corpses and various things in Welsh mythology. So it's all mm-hmm. tied in with a sense of death and destruction and battle and decay and that kind of thing. So where did you uh, where did you primarily pull your influences from, and sort of how did you build on that for you to to create your own uh, conception of fairy? Um, for the fairy hounds specifically, um, they were a combination of the like the grim uh, legends and the the black dog omen of death in in uh, British English folklore, and a combination of that and a story I read as a very young child, which um, I couldn't tell you the name of the author, the title of the story, anything at all. Um, I've looked for it since, um, but it was a story in some uh, children's collection about um, these Scottish or Irish white dogs that, um, with the glowing green eyes, that, like the Grim, were an omen of death. And I think it was in the story a woodcutter who was being followed by them, and because this was a children's story, and I feel like it was in like a very like Catholic centered anthology because the the moral of the story was he invited these hounds in to get warm by his fire on a winter's night and they didn't result in his death because of his generosity. Um, but the image of the these wild white dogs with their green eyes just bringing death to anyone who came across them really stuck with me for decades after (laughs) the fact. Um, So that was where the hounds came from. For the other fairy folklore, I didn't do much specific research for it just because I had been kind of collecting bits and pieces of fairy folklore for as long as I've been reading fantasy, really. Um, So like the Hawthorne and the Rowan trees, I know are, um, they go way back in England and Ireland as being connected to fairies. In, uh, I looked it up afterwards because I, I had written the book and then I was like, I know I'm thinking of something specific. And uh, Thomas the Rhymer, um, 13th century prophet and poet. Yes! Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, in, his, in his ballad, he met the queen of Elfland or the fairy queen who came out of a hawthorn tree and showed him these three roads that she invited him to come along with her. And there was a road to heaven, a road to hell, and then a third road, which led to her own land, um, which 
was later interpreted to be fairy. And I'm not sure if that uh, 13th century ballad was the originator of the idea that that fairy was um, a rented land from hell. So yeah, renting renting fairyland from hell, and also the the theory that fairies were originally angels who had refused to choose sides in the in the heavenly war, and so they were cast out, um, belonging to neither heaven nor hell, but this third place afterwards. And that, in every book that I write about fairy or involving the fae. Um, that's kind of the main concept that I'm basing them on. Uh, so the fae come up again in the bayou, um, not with any of the same folklore really as fairy hounds, but it's still based on this kind of fundamental understanding of the fae as these amoral, inhuman, unbeatable creatures. And that's what I keep coming back to for them, it's the most appealing thing about the folklore for me. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, that segues nicely into the bayou, actually. I, I love how the bayou is um, a foil for fairy hounds of York in a really interesting way. You've got that kind of, well, I'm going to let you introduce it and do the extract and stuff, and then we can actually talk about it properly. But yeah, I love how uh, you've got the fairy connection between the two books as well, um, and how things flip very much. So the fairies are still um, quite sinister, but have a very different purpose in the bayou uh, and a very different role in the novel. So would you like to introduce the bayou and then read extract for that? Absolutely. So the bayou is a southern gothic horror novella set in small town Louisiana, 1935. When Eugene was 12, a girl from town disappeared. Everyone said that the gators must have got her when she strayed too near the bayou. No foul play, just a terrible accident. But Eugene can't shake the conviction that Mary Beth's death had something to do with the man who used to haunt her, the man no one else could see. Now, nearly two decades later, there are more dangerous things than gators in Chanel Rivière. People are disappearing again, and this time no one can find the bodies. As the town's unease grows, charismatic fugitive Johnny Walker arrives on the scene shedding bullet casings and stolen banknotes in his wake. He tangles himself up in Eugene's life and awakens memories Eugene thought he had laid to rest years ago. Memories of the mysterious man who had followed Eugene into his dreams and memories of the bayou and of the horrifying entity that lurks beneath the water's surface, slowly seeping into the town like a stain. So in the excerpt I'm about to read, Eugene follows the ghostly man who had haunted Mary Beth into the bayou after her disappearance, and the townsfolk dredge her body from the swamp. When Mary Beth went missing, the town turned bruise-colored in the summer fog. Everything looked alien and strange, and the green of the bayou reflected in the clouds. Eugene followed the man through the courtyard, beyond the church grounds, down to the bayou where the trees grew gnarled and gray and the soil was wet and sucking underfoot. 
The man stopped at the first line of trees before they disappeared into the heavy fog, a cutting image in his fine black suit amid the leaning tree trunks and the gray-green atmosphere. He turned and looked back. Eugene only saw his face for an instant, fine-boned and pale, beautiful rather than handsome, with eyes like a wild animal. And then he vanished into the swallowing fog, shimmering out of existence like a mirage. Eugene swallowed hard, the heat crushing his lungs, and stepped into the bayou. He wasn't supposed to be there. His mother had always cautioned him away from the place. It was too easy to slip and fall, moss clinging to every surface and turning the trees slippery with slime. And there were the gators, too, their teeth sculpted before the dawn of time and waiting to sink into something soft and easy like a child. And more, even besides the gators, stories of ghosts and spirits made manifest, creatures lurking deep in the swamps, the Rougarous and the Haitian zombies. But it wasn't the ghost stories or the threat of gators that made Eugene sick with panic. There was a sense of something greater and more terrible in the bayou, a sense of dread and wrongness that took up residence in his guts and made the hairs on the nape of his neck stand up, shivering at the back of his skull, urging him to check over his shoulder to see that nothing had followed him in. He picked his way over rocks and tree roots, careful to avoid stepping in the water. Voices drifted through the fog, muffled by the trees in the wet. Shouts he couldn't understand as words. They sounded like ghosts. He followed them anyway, picking his way through the foliage, shivering all over as the dread solidified until it was inescapable. As soon as he reached the voices, everything would unravel. He was trapped in a waking dream, the bayou dense all around him, fogging his thoughts. Another shout, and figures took shape between the trees. Eugene slipped and stepped into the water. It splashed up to his knees, warm and thick with slime. Biting his lip, he waded on, leaving the tangle of tree roots behind. There were men on the far bank, a group of them reaching to pull something from the water. A dark shape emerged from the swamp, bedraggled and trailing algae and vines. Someone shouted his name and Eugene startled. His mother pushed past the men and reached for him. He waited near enough for her to grab his sleeve and haul him back to solid land. She ran her fingers through his hair as if reassuring herself that he was still in one piece, but his attention was drawn to the men and the waterlogged shape they had found. He couldn't understand what he was seeing at first. His brain was numb and flickering as they laid the thing down. Don't look, his mother whispered. Eugene swallowed. The body, it was a body, he realized sickly, or part of one, was gray, blue around the face and the fingertips, its cotton dress black from the bayou. It wasn't Mary Beth. Mary Beth had shining dark hair, not the black matted clumps that hung around the body's face, and she had clear gray eyes like storm, summer storm clouds. The body had no eyes at all. Eugene's mother forcibly turned him away and pressed his face against her. For a second, he couldn't breathe, the fabric of her blouse smothering him, and he gasped, making it damp with the air from his panicked lungs. Come away, his mother said. Her voice sounded strange, like she too was choking. When he looked up, her face was wet with tears, her mouth a thin, hard line. Come on, come away. You don't have to see this. He had already seen it. 
but he took her hand and let her lead him out of the bayou, up to the path by the church, his limbs uncooperative as he walked. His shoes were ruined from the water and left black prints behind with every step. He concentrated on stalling the fledgling asthma attack before it could take hold. The trees look ghostly in the morning fog. Eugene stood, shaking, the only sound his own shallow panting, but Mary Beth's man did not reappear. Eugene couldn't will him into being any more than he could will her back to life. The roses looked faded, as if they too were in mourning. Had they borne witness to Mary Beth's final moments? Eugene imagined their petals opening like mouths to wail their accusations, but there was no evidence of foul play. Everything had been washed away by the dark waters. All Eugene had were his own memories. As the weeks slipped into months and summer was left behind, Eugene's mother plied him with medication. For his asthma, for the myriad illnesses that cropped up as the year dragged on, for his anxiety and his relentless nightmares. Night after night, the medicine lulled him into heavy slumber that dulled his mind and smothered his nerves. Eugene banished the Rougarou to the dark recesses of his mind where it couldn't touch him, and by next summer, he thought of it as nothing more than a former night terror, hazy and unfinished in his mind's eye. Mary Beth occupied a small and guilty portion of his heart that, like a fresh bruise, he was careful not to touch. It took longer to shake the memory of the man, but eventually he too faded, like a ghost under the summer sun. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's so sinister. Um, and it's, I love how this is a different kind of loss. And it's its very much um, reminiscent of, um, you know, there's still parallels with Fairy Hounds of York where he lost a sister and that kind of, um, that personal guilt that, um, Thorncrest feels but here it's a wider culpability of it's you know it's not Eugene's fault that um, the little girl died but you've got this idea that he's carrying this guilt with him through to adulthood but it's not just his guilt there's a wider culpability of the entire town um, and that kind of focus is shifted onto the um, the town itself um, so maybe we could talk about how guilt and grief intertwine in the story, because there is also a romance uh, of sorts in that. But we'll get onto that in a minute, because that's, again, like that's very much like a flipped version of the romance in Fairy Hounds. So, yeah, can we talk about guilt and grief and those themes and how you work those into the story? Mm -hmm. So as in Fairy Hounds with Thorncrest and his sister, um, Eugene isn't actually responsible for Mary Beth's death. Um, he carries this immense guilt for not being able to help her, the same as Thorncrest carries that guilt for his sister. Um, the difference is that in the bayou, um, Mary Beth absolutely holds Eugene responsible. She does blame him. Uh, whereas in Fairy Hounds, we have no perspective from Thorncrest's sister at all, except for her letter. Um, in either case, uh, the, the two men, the two characters, they are not responsible, uh, despite how they feel that they are. Um, but the further difference with Eugene, um, like, Maybe he was there, so maybe he could have helped her. 
and I wanted to leave that open to interpretation and the reader can really decide, you know, if he had physically tried to intervene, if he had tried harder to convince other people what had happened, you know, maybe that would have made a difference or maybe would have killed him as well. And there's, there's really no telling how it could have gone differently, which I think is the appeal of that kind of tragedy. But ultimately, he was a 12-year-old boy, and he shouldn't legally be held responsible. Um, but yeah, absolutely, he feels like he is, and Mary Beth, more importantly, feels like he is. Um, when he finally confronts Mary Beth at the climax of the book, and he's trying to defend the town from this vengeance that she's wrecking. He cites the example, um, she's wiping out the entire town and that's including children who hadn't even been born when she was killed, but he never includes himself on the list of people that he thinks should be spared. He's completely willing to not only sacrifice himself if he thinks it would give her peace, but he does think that he deserves it. And if she wants to wipe out every single person that she holds responsible, then he's putting himself, you know, maybe not at the top of the list, but certainly in second place. And as I kind of mentioned uh, a minute ago, like I didn't want to make his guilt easy for the readers to decide if they wanted to agree with it or if they wanted to absolve him. But I did want to make it as complicated as possible. <laughs> and in the same way, I wanted um, Mary Beth's vengeance to be this kind of, you know, is she right or is she going too far? She deserves to avenge herself, but like you said, uh, the wider culpability, like how far does that extend? Like there's no way, I grew up in an extremely small Catholic town like that. And um, there's as much as you think that everyone is in everyone else's business, there's always someone who has no idea what's going on. And yeah, I, I think it is difficult to draw the line between that kind of revenge fantasy and saying that's not the same as justice, though. Yeah, okay. So let's, I want to think more about that, the oppositional stuff, because I really like that. Mm -hmm. And I love the um, how complicated the bio is sort of morally compared to fairy hounds but which doesn't have all of that deeper complexity to it because it is this really lovely tragic gothic romance I mean that's not to say it's not complicated but it's got different things going on to this um, and in this one there is a relationship with Eugene and the entity known as Johnny Walker <laughs> yes I like that <laughs> But that's very dubious consent. It's very unhealthy. It's got some great moments. I think the the church moment is is probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but yeah, that's you're not alone. <laughs> but it's very like that's such a good contrast to the relationship in Fairy Hounds as well. Um, what appealed to you about perhaps appeal is the wrong word. <laughs> But what, uh, about this, um, these sorts of dynamics 
Um, and was it intentional to have the stories mirror each other in this kind of oppositional way? Or is that just something that came about um, organically? And I suppose because there you've got like the opposition of winter versus summer, the heat versus the cold, um, northern uh, British English Gothic, um, so Yorkshire Gothic to Southern Gothic, which is like these these two completely different feels and these, um, but they 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 kind of mirror each other really well as a pair. So I'm just wondering if that was intentional and um, if not, like how did that sort of come about? That's like a ten part question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm gonna tackle the. Um the oppositional settings and everything first, and then I'll circle back around to the to the mirrored relationships. Great, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was like, everything, <laughs> it's very opposite. Everything at once. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> um, yeah, so as far as switching from you know, Northern England Gothic all the way to uh, Southern Gothic Louisiana and the winter versus summer, part of that was not wanting to deliver exactly the same experience to readers back to back. Um, so I don't remember exactly how I was writing the two books, but I think I started writing them both in the same summer, and I want to say 2017. Um, so The Bayou was actually written first, and then it was out on submission for a while, and it just kind of um, off the work table, basically. Um, and I, I started Fairy Hounds kind of in the same mood, I think. Um, and then both books got put aside until early 2020, um, when I was suddenly much less busy with work and everything else. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I picked up the Fairy Hounds in early 2020, but the Bayou was still off in a slush pile somewhere and had been for a couple of years at that point. So I wasn't really thinking about both books as being a pair or a couple at that time. So yes, I finished writing Fairy Hounds. I published it in the summer of 2020, like halfway through the year. And um, it was only after that went out that I decided uh, I was going to pull the bayou from the slush pile and rewrite it almost, not entirely, but very much, <laughs> and, uh, and decide what to do with it from there. So yeah, on the tale of fairy hounds, I really wanted a change of scenery for myself as a writer from one book to the next, because I am very restless as a writer. I get distracted. Like if I just finished writing a fluffy romance, then I'll usually draft a horror project next and vice versa. So that early in the pandemic and the lockdown and everything, I wasn't in the mood to write a fluffy romance after Fairy Hounds. But doing that 180 degree turn from this really cold, wintry, northern setting into this lush, dripping humidity of the Deep South was enough of a change that I didn't feel bored or trapped by it. Um, so that was my main motivation, I think, <laughs> for just doing something so drastically different. Because looking back at the similarities between the books, they're very obvious. And at the time, I wasn't really consciously dealing with them. But yeah, that was one reason. 
<laughs> another reason was that all of the doom and depression aside, I really love the drama of pathetic fallacy and uh, having extreme weather that is so impossible to divorce from the setting. Um, if you try to tone it down or change it to a different climate, it would make it into a completely different story. I think that lends itself really well to the melodrama of the gothic genre. It's just, you think of gothic and you've got the dark and stormy night and it's just, they go together so well. So it does appeal to me. Um, wanting to make the setting its own character and having it be as important as any of the, uh, you know, there's Thorncrest and there's Loxley, there's the creature and there's the moors. And I wanted, I wanted the setting to be really brought to the forefront in both books. The other opposition was sort of the relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and so how you've got this very healthy trying to rescue one another relationship with mm -hmm. Loxley and Thorncrest. And Loxley is very kind of timid. That There's a very tender undressing scene. And then there's this very like lovely developing feelings and pining and only one bed and all of that kind of yes. stuff in yes. that one. And then you get to the bayou and it's like, dubious consent it's fucking in a church it's like full all the all the good yeah. stuff yeah so and it's a very toxic relationship it's very unhealthy mm -hmm. it's it's got low-key abusive elements going on in that power dynamic that Eugene is very much at the bottom of and I just wondered about that opposition between those two relationships if you want to talk about that a little bit when you lay it out like that um, I'm rethinking whether I wrote a fluffy romance at the beginning of the pandemic and then I switched to horror because maybe I did do that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I think I think part of it is, again, as me as a writer, just wanting to explore, you know, I did the sweet and arguably healthy relationship and then I switched to something really dark and toxic um, because I find both kinds of relationships equally interesting and fun to explore. But when you had first mentioned comparing and contrasting the two relationships, my brain automatically went to um, not Thorncress and Loxley, but Loxley and the creature because they have parallels yes. to Johnny and Eugene. That yes. Are very that much are much so. more at the forefront of my mind because those similarities were intentional as I've talked before about how the uh how I'm using the same baseline for all of my fae as these amoral self-centered self-serving you know they're going to take what they want and whoever is being taken from is just kind of not really considered as a casualty they're just a resource to be exploited or a toy to provide entertainment. So yeah, that was what I had automatically thought of when you had first mentioned the uh, relationship parallels or contrasts. Yes. But, Do you want to explain about the creature and Loxie's relationship yes. just a little bit? Because that yes. is actually that because that isn't that that's got a lot of similarities. Because I was go my mind was going like opposites, and mm -hmm. so I was looking at those two central. What I saw as the two central relationships with the actual kind of romance elements in them, but mm -hmm. for, for for Eugene and Johnny. But like, yes, you know what I mean. And um, yeah, no, you're right. Like the but it's Loxley's relationship with the creature that has that very much the same vibe, and you don't see it 
perhaps in Eugene and Johnny's relationship so much at the beginning because you're still thinking like who is what is Johnny Walker like there's something ethereal about him and not quite right mm-hmm. um, and obviously he's a bank robber <laughs> like, that too. but he's but so he's already got that glamour to him yes um, but you do feel that with Mary Beth and the shadowy man that is like following her around who's not quite what you think so you yes and that's I guess Loxie and the creature and then Mary Beth and her mm-hmm. you know the man that was just following her around that only her and Eugene could see and that uh, sorry go on if you want to just <laughs> kind of contextualize what Loxie and the creature are doing <laughs> yes yes I hadn't thought about that parallel with the Mary Beth and the man at all oh I need to reread my own books more often clearly because these are like English lit exam questions and I uh <laughs> so sorry <laughs> no it's it's good I was I was very good at exams <laughs> just not with my own books apparently um yes so for context um Loxley and the creature uh when Loxley was a young boy there was a hawthorn tree in his yard and there was a little spirit trapped in the tree that he would talk to and play with and he told it his name because they were friends except there was always something kind of off-putting about the creature and when the days would get darker and the nights would come on earlier he would always find himself strangely unsettled by the back of the yard and this this little creature was somehow more menacing than before fast forward 20 some years and the the creature is a fae changeling child who's trying to get back to fairy because Loxley gave it his name and kind of offered himself up to it unwittingly. The creature is determined to use him to open the door to return to fairy. And because Loxley was its friend, it thinks that he should definitely agree to sacrifice himself because he's already done so much for it. So there are visual parallels between Mary Beth and her man, who is kind of tied to her family and haunting her like this specter and no one else sees him or acknowledges him yeah I was completely unaware of that parallel until just now that's fun (laughs) I love looking for things like that and I think Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love looking at um books in those sorts of ways do you want to talk about um Johnny Walker's relationship with Eugene and how that all kind of works in that very toxic way and the mm-hmm. way it plays into your your conception of fairy as well. Yes. Um, so in the bayou, um, Johnny Walker's interest in Eugene is less transactional than the creature's interest in Loxley. Um, and it's really more of an entertainment-based relationship. I wanted to build that back and forth between the two of them as having romance potential. Um, Not even like dark romance genre, but something, you've got the bad boy bank robber who is all charming and action-based, and then you've got the very timid and withdrawn um, journalist Eugene and it's a setup for 
in a different genre. It could absolutely be a romance that doesn't end horrifically. Um, so I wanted to draw the reader in with that potential and only gradually make Johnny more threatening and kind of otherworldly as the book went on. Like the um, the metaphor with you're boiling the frog in the pot, but you turn the heat up very, very gradually so it doesn't realize it's being boiled alive. And I wanted Eugene and the reader to be in a similar position in regards to Johnny. By the time they realize what he is and what he's capable of, they've already fallen half in love with him his charm and his appearance and allure and everything. And then it's like, oh, actually, I've <laughs> been warning about him the whole time and you just weren't listening. So that was that was the approach I wanted to take. And yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what point in the book it becomes uh, the, the reveal about Johnny's true nature. I think it was towards the end it must have been the climax right yeah I think it's it's part of the big twist at the end when we learn mm. the connection with Mary Beth's man mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff all comes out right yeah in the church in the church scene again so by that point Eugene is fully trapped under this man's spell not literal spell but there's no way he's going to be able to extricate himself Johnny has decided that he wants Eugene as his new companion, his new plaything, uh, as a replacement for the unnamed boy who had been his companion years earlier, and as a replacement for Angelique. Yeah, because Angelique and Johnny start off as this Bonnie and Clyde couple that mm -hmm. burst into the scene, and you're like, aha, Johnny yes. is clearly a bi icon, um, and you're getting <laughs> that kind of vibe. <laughs> yes. Then bad shit happens to Angelique. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> because those two, they were originally presented. I wanted them to be seen as equals on the page, as literal partners in crime. And then, as with the Eugene situation, you get more clues as you go along that things aren't as they appear. And Johnny is really just this mask of, I guess, glamour would be appropriate. And then, yeah, and then everything falls apart and gets progressively worse until, you know, they're all doomed and you realize they're all doomed. And that's the end of the book. Yeah, it's such a good ending. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of like they do have Fairy Hounds of York is like a doomed ending, but it's got that note mm. of hope and optimism and it's got that lovely, satisfying ending. I thought the ending was quite satisfying. I thought anyway. it was. I like that and that did have very much the Susanna Clark vibe about it mm. as well which I really liked but with the Bayou it's very much like you've got that same sense of dread and impending doom mm -hmm. and then it is actually impending doom <laughs> yes yeah which I, I also found very satisfying like I really like that um the contrast and stuff at, at the end um but I don't want to say too much about the end, but there's another kind of contrast as well that I was thinking of, which is like the difference of the losses in the books. Mm -hmm. And so in Fairy Hounds of York, you've got this absence and the loss that is, is kind of going through it as a theme is very much the absence of a loved one. Mm -hmm. But in the bayou, the loss and the grief is attached to something very tangible because 
you've got the actual corpse and the memory of the corpse and that in that extract that you read out for us mm -hmm. um and it's a site of horror and haunting and it's whereas in fairy hounds of york it's the absence that haunts Thorncrest until almost who his sister really was as a person and what she might have wanted for him that doesn't matter anymore because he is just um motivated almost entirely by her absence in his life and that prevents him from allowing that hole to be filled up with anything else including mm -hmm. Loxley ultimately mm -hmm. But maybe if Loxley had known him longer, maybe if there'd been more time, you know, it's that all the, that kind of Romeo and Juliet tragedy of it, you know, um, but you've still got that intractable, no, I've decided that I'm going to do this because she's my sister and she mm -hmm. isn't here anymore. But in the bayou, it here's this memory of this rotting corpse that is, you know, kind of suppressing all other memories about what actually happened and you've got the tangibility of the bayou itself as the site of the loss and all of these things that it's so intractably part of that landscape so I just wondered if you wanted to maybe talk about that as like the tangibility versus the absence of sites of horror and haunting and, and what that kind of means for you <laughs> mm -hmm. and why you chose to play with those yeah um that was all really beautifully put um so <laughs> yes as you very eloquently summarized. Um, Thorncrest is constantly trying to follow in his sister's footsteps. Um, he's unable to release her memory, and it's his clarity of memory and the sense of responsibility for her death, despite the fact that it wasn't his fault. That's what dooms him, ultimately, and it's that clinging to that loss that prevents him from accepting Loxley's love until it's too late, even though that love probably could have saved him. He was right on the brink of saying yes to Loxley and no to that death wish that he'd been chasing for so long. But of course, the timing was, it was just terrible. And then it's, it's reversed and it's Thorncress's death that leaves that hole in Loxley's life that Loxley has to go chasing after. The book was also focusing on, it had that secondary loss even before Thorncrest died, um, and Loxley was mourning the loss of his own future because he didn't see the fairy hounds, but he, he did have that curse that was dragging him to the creature, to fairy. But in contrast to Thorncrest, who was refusing Loxley's love because of that loss, he couldn't reconcile the two, Loxley's sense of doom made him reckless and that was the the force that drove him to take the risk um, to pursue that sexual or romantic relationship that he had otherwise never dared to make a move on before and i i think you could classify loxley's mourning of himself as an absent loss as well it's definitely not like a tangible thing to be mourning your own future yeah, percent. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did. I wanted to bring that up as a, I guess, a third main loss in that book: the sister and Loxley himself, and Thorncrest's yeah. death. That morning of the future mirrors the morning of the past. In the bio, you, you're kind of this morning of the past, but also the absence of the memories, because mm -hmm. Eugene doesn't remember what happened. 
And yes. so you have that memory loss of the reality of what happened in the, the, mm-hmm. the past and that mourning of a present that could have happened if he'd done something different. Like she could still be there if it wasn't, he thinks, if it wasn't for him suppressing mm-hmm. the memories, you know, that it's somehow his fault. And so, yes, you've got that mirror again, like in Fairy Hands, it's the morning of the future that you'll never have. And in the bio, it's mourning the past and the way the present could be different. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's that whole like, because that also happened when he was a young boy. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, like he was 12 when Mary Beth died and Loxley's curse happened when he was a young boy mm-hmm. and you've got that kind of like the the haunt you know, that that sort of very gothic trope of being haunted by the past and being haunted by your past mistakes even mm-hmm. though arguably you were too young to know what you were doing at the time or too young to kind of take those that responsibility but now you're an adult that mistake is still haunting you and now as an adult you have to pay mm-hmm. and that makes everything much more complicated and just adds these layers on of like guilt and responsibility and all of these things that come out of all of that yeah anyway, thank you so much for that I really thank you <laughs> I really love it um and we're running slightly out of time bang. <laughs> but do you want to wrap up just by the influences and folklore that inspired the bayou specifically because we haven't really touched on that so much yet let me I won't go over the fae folklore again uh folklore specific to the bayou uh the rougarou played a main part and that's very specifically it's a french werewolf story and rougarou I think is more specifically like Louisiana French. Um, So it's a werewolf variant that's sometimes tied to Catholicism in the region, and it's used as kind of a boogeyman preying on children who break Lent, or it's created by, by people who break Lent for enough years in a row. So it seems like a really fitting monster, even though like the Ruguru is in the story just folklore itself. I did want that regional grounding to give it a little extra flavor. I said I wasn't going to talk about the Fae, but (laughs) I hadn't actually planned on making Johnny Walker Fae at all. That didn't come up until a later draft, and before that he was just this undetermined supernatural being. But when I was doing some background research for Louisiana, and I found that there was a really high percentage of Irish immigrants at the time. I thought that gives me a perfect in to give him some depth and give it more real world folklore grounding. Because in the original draft, uh, Johnny Walker was influenced mostly by Anne Rice's uh, Mayfair Witches books. And um, I don't know if you've read those, but, but <laughs> don't, don't bother. Um, But there was this one character called Lasher, who was this supernatural entity that followed or was tied to uh, generations of women through this witch family. And it was kind of there to do their bidding, except it wasn't really working in their like best interests. So I really liked that idea. So I kind of pulled that concept and then I stuck it into this um, 
Irish fae mythology. But yeah, most of my world building or scene setting, it came from a lot of Anne Rice's stuff, just because I grew up reading her books and they left such an impression that anything set in the deep south, I go to her first and then I figure everything else out after. But I think that hit all of my main folklore points for the bayou. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I haven't read the Anne Rice books. Um, I tell you what it did remind me of was, are you familiar with the, the classic weird fiction writers like Frank Belknap Long, um, who did The Hounds of Tindalos is probably his most famous one, maybe. Um, and there's a collection called The Hounds of Tindalos and other stories, I think it's called. It's all kind of cosmic horror and mm. weird frogs and shit, right? And <laughs> And then there's this one, which is just about like this guy. Uh, it's, it's obviously all American, like US American set. And um, some of them are quite, feel quite Southern Gothic to me, who knows nothing. <laughs> but there was one story and it's literally this guy who's some sort of middle-class American, US American guy. And he's got a load of fairies following him around. And it's the most bizarre thing because they're actually tiny little leprechaun type fairies that he's just mm -hmm. got this gift and he can see them. And then they're very mischievous. And I'm like, what, what's this doing in a weird fiction collection? <laughs> what's this? <laughs> and um they, they just make his life a misery until he learns to live with them hmm. and it's and but it's it's very much set in, he's a very modern all-american guy who just mm -hmm. has to cope with the fact that he has fairies now like an infestation of fairies that come from ireland because he's irish like irish american uh -huh. he just has to deal with it and it's a I very short it. it's batshit crazy. it's 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 bonkers anyway yeah like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that kind of I, I'm glad you didn't do that with it but like <laughs> I think there's a precedent I'd like to <laughs> like um you know like Americans and fairies anyway sorry that was a completely <laughs> quite <laughs> all right thing so I think that's about all we've got time for and if you'd like to just wrap up and let us know anything that you've got coming out or um so this episode is going to air 2023 <laughs> so so mm. but yes yeah, so if you've got anything coming out in that kind of time frame or you want to plug things you already have um now is the time Excellent. so yeah share with us <laughs> all right um yeah in that time i will be releasing probably my next uh floss magicade book um, that is a series of standalone historical fantasy romances, and they're mostly pretty light and fluffy. So I'm going to more specifically plug my novel from last summer, which is called Obsidian Island. And if you liked Fairy Hounds or the Bayou, um, this will probably be more appealing than, than my very sweet and fluffy uh, <laughs> romances. Um, so Obsidian Island. Um, is an, pretending to be an 18th century action and adventure, a fantasy story set on an island that is trying really hard to kill this group of, of unfortunate friends who have washed up on its shore. It was intended to be action and adventure, and then all of the reader feedback I got said that it was actually a lot creepier than I had intended it. So... I'm going to say it's horror adjacent fantasy. And I, I think it was a good fun 
read. So that's that. Otherwise, um, you can follow me on Twitter if Twitter is still standing. But the best place to find me <laughs> is, is going to be my newsletter, which will be linked in, in the transcript. So that's me. Yep, it will indeed. So um, if you hop to uh, cmrosens.com um, or if you go to my Kofi, which is kofi.com forward slash cmrosens, you'll see the post which is available for everybody. Um, and that will be the full transcript of this, uh, of this interview with all of Arden's links and promo images attached. So you can um, hop on over there and have a little look. Thank you, Arda, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.